How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so we can each make sure that we are uh, ready and spiritually prepared to study the word and that we might be under the influence of God the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to make the scripture clear to us and to help us understand how to apply it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together to reflect upon you, to study your word, to be strengthened, encouraged, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of who you are in terms of your essence, and that you can be relied upon to handle any and every situation and circumstances in our lives, from that which is personal to that which is uh, national, that which is uh, much larger than us, that which involves uh, the historical trends and where we're headed uh, as a nation, that we may relax and trust in you, remembering that our mission is to reflect your character to the culture, that we may shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and that we may be a, a, a witness uh, verbally to those around us as to your grace and understand the transforming power of your grace. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us as we study your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. While you're turning in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, I thought I would give a little report on the uh, trip last week to Gulfport. I was going to do this on Sunday, and just we just didn't quite have enough time. Uh, so I thought, well, I would just do it tonight. The conference that I spoke at is called the Coast Bible Conference, and this conference began in 1941. For those of you who don't have a whole lot of historical uh, frame of reference on Bible conferences, the Bible Conference Movement, or what was became to be known as the Bible Conference Movement, started in the late 1800s. It was probably an outgrowth of the old tent revivals that would took, take place along the American frontier. Uh, during the uh, early and mid part of the 1800s, you would go to areas that were sparsely populated. I remember reading a biography of Davy Crockett when I was uh, a kid in elementary school, and at one point his father decided they should move uh, to the next location because the neighbors were too close. They were 20 miles away. So people lived in the, very spread out at, at the time of the American frontier, and these frontier revivalists, these itinerant preachers would come, and many of them were Methodists back in the day. Some were itinerant Baptists. And the way you could tell the difference, they said, between a Baptist and a Methodist was what? Anybody have any idea? The Baptist had a whiskey flask in his saddlebag. That's not the way we normally think of Baptists and Methodists today. So I always thought that was a 
a uh, an um, amusing anecdote. There was a professor of religion at Rice who wrote a book some years ago. I think it was called uh, Bible in His Hand, Gun in His Pocket. And it was a story of frontier preachers, and he did a pretty pretty good job telling a lot of interesting stories about frontier preachers. But people would come together in these revivals, and they would come from 30, 40, 50 miles away and have a week of meetings. And a lot of times they didn't even have a local church. And so some of these got pretty emotional and out of hand because people just weren't used to being around other people uh, at that time. So that was the old revival movement in the mid-1900s. And by the end of the 1900s, as, uh, excuse me, 1800s, as people were more settled, they would have Bible conferences, especially prophecy conferences like the Niagara Bible conferences that took place up in New York, and there were a number of others that took place in the Northeast and around the country. So this Coast Bible Conference started just before World War II, and they've had it every single year up until about uh, seven or whenever it was, six, seven, eight years ago when Hurricane Katrina came in, and that really had a devastating impact on, on the coast. Up until that point, they would have around 200 people that would come, and the conference itself was all week long. People would uh, come, about uh, maybe a third of the attendees were from out of the area. They would come, they would go to the beach, they would uh, have various activities in the area, and then Katrina hit and just wiped out so much. And a lot of the locals that came probably were displaced. And so since Katrina, their their attendance dropped to about maybe 80 or 90, and they uh, um, they continued to meet, but they shrunk the length of the conference down to uh, uh, two, a couple of days from noon on Thursday to noon on Saturday, but they still had as many sessions as they had before. It's kind of like the Chafer Conference. When we first started that pastor's conference, it started on Monday and went to Friday, but they didn't meet in the afternoon. And so now we've shrunk it down to two and a half days, but we still are three days, and we still have just as many uh, sessions as we did before, and that helps people uh, people who are traveling and have a long way to go, and they don't have to spend as much on hotels and that sort of thing. So it was a good conference, and there have been a lot of speakers there over the years. There's names you would recognize, people like Charles Ryrie, Stan Toussaint, John Walford, uh, quite a few, Wayne House, I'm trying to think of, uh, of, of some others, Chris Cohn, who just uh, a couple of years ago left his position as president of Tyndale Seminary. But they've had quite a, quite a number of speakers, and they have different speakers every year. They have two speakers, and each speaker speaks six times. This year they uh, met at a church in the area. There's two or three different churches that are in the area that are Bible churches, and, and this particular church was a Bible Fellowship Church in Past Christian, uh, Alabama, which is right along Gulfport and Long Beach and all these little communities over there. So the pastor there has his has, has did his undergraduate at Southeastern Bible College, and then he did his master's work at Tyndale and his doctoral work at Tyndale. And he was pretty solid, although I didn't get to hear three of his sessions because I had to leave early. So he did a good job. His name was Don Trest, and he was speaking on the Gospel of John and did a good job, as far as I could tell from the three sessions I heard. I taught on the spiritual life. My name had been recommended to them two or three years ago by a black pastor in the area who had been one of my students with WHW. 
and I had not seen that individual since 2000. And he and a couple of other uh, black pastors in the area who had come to WHW back in 99, 2000 uh, continue to listen, and they have also uh, shared the ministry with four or five other uh, black pastors in the area who regularly listen. So he had recommended me, and they invited me to come and speak, and we set that up. And then when he found out about it, he wanted to know if I could come a couple of days early and speak to a pastor's group, group of pastors there, as well as speak at maybe one or two uh, uh, black churches while I was out there. So we left after church on that Sunday and went out there and had a kind of a day of rest on Monday. And then on Tuesday, I met with this group of pastors. And by the time that came together, they wanted me to talk about this same-sex marriage issue and how that was going to impact churches and ministries and um, 501c3s and tax exemption and all these other things. So I talked for about two and a half hours to that group of pastors, and then there was another 10 or 15 people that came uh, from uh, several different churches to find out uh, more about those issues. So we that was on Tuesday afternoon. Then there were three or four pastors who couldn't make that, so we went to lunch on uh, Wednesday afternoon, and on Wednesday night I spoke at that at Pastor Mark Turner's church. And then the conference began on Thursday, and I taught twice Thursday afternoon, and then four times on Friday because I had to trade off with the other speaker on Saturday morning so I could get back for Gene Hanish's uh, memorial service. But what was really great was to find a pastor there, Don Trest, and another pastor named Lauren, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, I think Fall or Fowl, F-A-U-L, who was a Dallas Seminary graduate from 82, so he graduated two years after, after or 83. Uh, he started two years after I did. I think he took a little longer to get through the program. But he was free grace, is also in dispensational, and they said, you know, nobody knows we exist out there. But now we've connected with them, and they're connecting with Chafer Seminary. They knew a little bit about Chafer Seminary. Lauren had read in the Chafer Journal some things, and, and they knew... Uh, uh, and that was about it. So it was good to make those connections and to, and Lauren said, told me after about the fourth session, he said, so nice to listen to a pastor with whom you don't disagree. Because he said so many people, and we talked about all these ics, acts, and spasms that are going on in Christianity and evangelicalism today. And I used to be the guy who was on the cutting edge and knew all of this stuff, but I don't get out there and get around as much as I used to, and I don't hear, I hear little bits and pieces. It's horrible out there. Very few people really do talk about the Bible. There are a lot of people who talk about what they're doing is teaching the Bible. But Tommy, Dr. Ice, has told me on several occasions that he's gone to some prophecy conferences where he's been invited, and there may be 10, 12 speakers, and he's the only one that pulls out the Bible and starts doing verse-by-verse exposition. And people are just involved in all kinds of speculation, and uh, they get into lots of what I just call you know, pop religion, which has uh, loose is loosely based on, on the Bible, but it it really isn't. They're not going through the Word. And this is is really sad today because we have uh, some, in fact, a, a well-known, uh, the son of a very well-known uh, Baptist pastor out of Atlanta 
who and the son is a Dallas Seminary graduate, but he has taken some terrible wrong turns. He's become pro-Palestinian Christian. He's become um, just a lot of different things. And he uh, apparently, I can't remember what it was now, whether he wrote it or had a sermon on it, but it just, just, it, it was insulting to pastors who taught verse by verse and just went through the scripture. Says, says that's the laziest, most incompetent way to study the Bible. And this made it all around uh, that sermon or uh, whatever it was, made it all the way around the internet about four or five months ago. And that's that's what's happening today. You don't find verse-by-verse verse exposition, but that's the only way you learn the Bible. And that's the only way a pastor can really learn the text is to study it verse-by-verse. Verse. And then as a pastor studies it verse-by-verse, verse, after you've been doing verse-by-verse verse exposition for maybe, maybe 10, 15 years, then you've got enough time in grade and enough study to where you can do more accurate topical messages because you've worked through the exegesis of all those key passages and you understand what they're saying. And so often what you hear in topical messages is you, they're just proof texting and they're just pulling out this verse and that verse and this other verse to try to prove what they're saying. And if you really study those verses in context, they don't any more prove what they're saying or have anything to do with the topic they're, they're preaching on than the man in the moon. And this is what passes for Christianity today. This country is in a terrible situation. And as we've, I've said, and we've heard from others, as goes the Christian, so goes the nation. And the way Christians are going in this nation is terrible. It is absolutely awful because they've gotten away from the Word of God and they don't know it. They give the Word of God lip service, but they don't spend time in it. There ought to be... There ought not be an empty seat in this building whenever I'm teaching. The fact that there are empty seats just is a testimony to the fact that people don't want to know the Bible anymore. And pastors don't want to. I mean, every now and then, Tommy and I get off on tangents when we're on the phone and we have our rants about the fact that back when we went to seminary, you could interview, talk to anybody you met at Dallas. Well, why did you come to Dallas Seminary? I wanted to teach the Bible. But that's not the answer you get anymore. And then, right, John? Absolutely. Yeah, you, they don't want to teach the Bible. They they go for all kinds of other reasons. And I don't know why they get into so much debt if they're not going to spend their money to learn how to teach the Bible. So it's on the Bible, it's the Word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is not human opinion. And it is not motivational speaking. And it's not making people feel good as your primary primary purpose. So having said that, it was a good conference. The people were very responsive. The people are a group of people who come. Some of those people have been coming 30, 40, 50 years. There was one lady we went out to lunch with uh, on, I think it was on Wednesday or Tuesday. can't remember what day it was now, whatever it was, Tuesday. That's when it was. And she had been coming almost since the beginning. She was 86 years old. And she had been coming almost since the beginning of this conference in 1941 when she was very, when she was like a teenager. So it was good to see that there are people who come and they sat through all 12 sessions and they took it in. They asked good questions 
and there was a there's a U.S. Armed Forces Retirement Center right there on the beach in Gulfport. And the first day I was there, we had a break, and I went to a table and sat down in the fellowship hall, and there were about six or seven guys all there, and probably two-thirds of them had come over from that uh, that retirement center. And they were asking good questions, intelligent questions, showing that they had been taught the Word of God. So that's that's what's important. All right, let's look at our passage here in uh, 1 Samuel. Chapter 2, going back, we haven't been here for three weeks due to other studies, other things, but we're looking at this great exposition, and we'll cover from probably verse 5 on in this session. We may even finish it tonight, because what we have here in this section primarily are different examples of God's rule over life and death and all of the issues of life and death. And the real focal point of this passage is on the sovereign rule of God over history. And yesterday I heard a great example of this. For those of you who are a little discouraged and might be a a little down and feel a little defeated because over the last uh, year or so, counting some local city problems and elections and things, and the Supreme Court rules, this horrible disaster of a of a uh, nuclear agreement with Iran it's it's not going to limit anything it has emboldened the Iranians I'll talk about this later but this is setting the stage for another holocaust just as Neville Chamberlain set the stage for the last Holocaust in World War II by thinking that he had entered into a peace deal with with uh, Hitler. But we know that ultimately the Iranians are not going to drop a nuclear weapon on Israel. And we know that because uh, that would render the land uninhabitable. And it's going to be inhabitable for the tribulation to take place. And so whatever doom and gloom we may think of, we, we are confident God's plan is not going to be thwarted by the craziness of the Ayatollahs out of Iran. But that doesn't mean they won't try to launch a nuclear weapon at the United States, and it doesn't mean they won't try to launch a nuclear weapon at Europe. Yesterday I had the privilege of going to a meeting with a number of other people, uh, with T- Senator Ted Cruz, and he made an excellent point. That, that there are so many parallels with what is going on today and what was going on at the end of the 70s when we had Jimmy Carter, who was sort of an Obama light. You know, probably uh, Jimmy Carter thinks the world of Obama primarily because it keeps him off the bottom. He's no longer the worst president. But if, if you were alive then, you know that we had double-digit inflation and interest rates on homes and mortgages. People were paying 14, 16, 18 percent interest rate on mortgages, and the economy was terrible. Gas prices, we'd had gas lines. It was absolutely horrendous, and people felt defeated. And then we had the whole situation with the American Americans that were taken hostage by the Iranians. But we nominated a candidate for president in 19, to run in 1980 by the name of Ronald Reagan. And he was solid on foreign policy and he was solid on defense. 
and people knew where he stood, and the Iranians knew where he stood, and the very day that he was sworn into office, the Iranians released the hostages, and from that point on, things began to recover because we had a leader who was focused and understood absolutes, and that's what we need. It's not impossible. God can change anything, and just as Hannah was being ridiculed and opposed by Penina, and we see Christians in a world today that are being uh, attacked by many people in our culture that are under assault from the homosexual lobby, that are under assault from liberal groups who want to uh, t- take Christianity completely out of the public uh, marketplace. Uh, nevertheless, we know that God can change things. Just as he changed things for Hannah, he can change things for us because that's what God can do because he is God. So the emphasis in this section is on God's sovereignty and how he overrides the plans and the dreams and the hopes of mankind. It's God's plan that works out in history, not the plans of the wicked. And so uh, Hannah emphasizes this in her uh, in her psalm, of praise, this victory psalm, because God has given her this victory by giving her a son. Now, let's just review a couple of things real quick. The first thing we see here in terms of of her emphasis is an emphasis that Yahweh is the unique, incomparable, transcendent sovereign of the universe. He is the unique, incomparable, transcendent sovereign of the universe. One of the things that I want to bring out tonight that I haven't brought out before is that this psalm also stands as a polemic against the false religions of the Canaanites that had taken a hold of the Israelites during the period of the judges. They were worshiping Baal and the fertility religions. They were worshiping the Asherah. All of these had had, uh, become dominant in the paganization of Israel. And God is going to turn everything around through this one child that he gives to Hannah. And so we see this, and often we see this in Scripture. A a polemic is is an attack on another position. It is an argument that is given. uh, Sometimes it's embedded within the structure that is to show the inadequacy and the inability of another view. And so often we find in a lot of different events in Scripture this emphasis on the uniqueness of God as over against all of these gods and goddesses that are being worshipped by people, that God alone, Yahweh, is able to accomplish things, and these other gods and goddesses can't do anything. And so that's what we see here. She's emphasizing Yahweh is the unique, incomparable, transcendent sovereign of the universe, that he has no rival. In 2.2, she says, there is none beside you. There's no one. And, and when you look at the, the myths, for example, in the, we, we, there's, there's a Canaanite uh, town by the name of Ugarit that was discovered back uh, about 50 years ago. And we discovered a lot of writing theirs, and in the Ugaritic myths, which were it was a, a northwestern uh, Canaanite city, the the there was the assembly of the gods, and and they met on Mount Zaphon, the mountain of the north in in Syria, which is comparable to Olympus, 
and the gods were all referred to as the sons of the Holy One, who is El. That's where we get, in Hebrew, Elohim. El was just a generic name for God. And El was comparable to Zeus, and uh, or probably, excuse me, was comparable to Saturn or Uranus, and his son, Baal, would be comparable to Zeus. Baal was the god of thunder and lightning, pictured as, as throwing a, a bolt of lightning. And El was viewed as the head of the head of the assembly of the gods, but Baal was the one that that came to dominate uh, came to dominate the pantheon. Uh, one of his consorts was the goddess Anat, and in the writings of the the the, the uh, what we have from Ugarit, uh, the mythology. Uh, Anat declares, Mightiest Baal is our king, our judge, over whom there is none. But against that backdrop, where there are many other gods, Hannah states that there's only one God, Yahweh, and there is none like her. The second thing that we see here, let me just put those first four verses up on the screen. These are the ones that we've looked at. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, like Yahweh. For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. So the first thing we see is that Yahweh is the unique, incomparable, transcendent sovereign of the universe. The second thing is that the omnipotent Yahweh protects his people like no other. He is a rock, and this picture that we've seen, and we studied that, was that God is called the rock. That was a metaphorical title for God. He's the rock. He's immovable. He's unshakable. A rock was a perfect place to hide from uh, for protection. And it emphasizes the power of God and his omnipotence. Third thing we uh, saw from this is that God is a God of justice. Yahweh dispenses justice by elevating the oppressed, and humiliating the proud. This is developed in verse 3 at the end, where it says, And by him actions are weighed. He is the ultimate and final judge in the universe, and his judgments are righteous, and they are therefore absolute and perfect. So Yahweh dispenses justice by elevating the oppressed and humiliating the proud. And this, as I said, is developed in verse 3, and then it's going to be illustrated in verses through the examples of verses 5, 5 through 10. The fourth thing we see is that Yahweh is the sovereign over life and death. God rules history. Yahweh rules history. Men can do many things, but ultimately God is the one who shapes and directs history, and he's the one who brings human plans to fruition or he completely reverses them, or he destroys them. So Yahweh is pictured as the sovereign over life and death, and he can send to the grave, and he can raise up. We'll have to study those metaphors as we go along. This is an allusion to resurrection. They send to the grave to raise up, though 
what we'll, what we'll see is that many, many modern scholars don't think resurrection had, uh, had, uh, any kind of, there was no knowledge of resurrection at that time in Israel's history. That's because they're influenced by a lot of human viewpoint. Fifth point that we see in this section is that Yahweh, not Baal or any other God, is the one who makes barren women fertile. Now, this is what we see. Uh, uh, Baal is the god of, of rain that brings, that brings productivity. It brings water to the crops, brings forth life. Uh, you have reenactment of uh, various uh, sexual actions between Baal and the Asherah, and this was to uh, indicate uh, fertility and prosperity. So it's just an early form of what we call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Uh, Yahweh is the one who's omnipotent, not these other gods. He's all-powerful. He never changes. And see, in the Baal myth, at least once a year, he had to succumb to death. The god of death was Mot. And once a year, he had to succumb to death, and he would be taken uh, down to uh, the place of the dead. And then he would be raised to life again a little later on. But what we see in this picture is God does not succumb to death. He is the one who, in verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He is the one who oversees who lives and who dies. So what we've seen here is an emphasis on a number of these attributes of God. And I've said this many times, that when you're thinking through life's problems... What you need to do is have a firm image in your mind of this essence chart, of the essence box, and think through these attributes and the role that these attributes have to play in the circumstances of your life. God is sovereign. That means he has a plan, and what's happening in your life might not be your plan. It might not be what you wanted to take place. But this is God's plan, and he's working something out. That's why Romans 8.28 says that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He rules in the affairs of man. He, he's righteous. That means that his, this represents the, the standard of his character, absolute perfection. He's justice. That's the outworking of his plan, of, of his righteous plan towards all of his creatures. And he deals with his creatures in absolute justice. He is love. And we see that somewhat embedded here in the fact that, that down further in verse 9, it says, He will guard the feet of his saints. He guards the feet of his saints because he cares about the feet of his saints. So that's God's love is implied there by that particular uh, statement. And so we also see that he is immutable. He's like a rock. You can't shake him. He is uh, indefatigable. He is going to always provide for us and protect us no matter what the circumstances are. And he is going to provide for us so that we can accomplish his plan for our life. There may come a time when we may be imprisoned or persecuted or even martyred like Peter and Paul and Matthew and James and so many of the early leaders in the Christian church, but that's God's plan. And it's his plan for us to be witnesses to him and witnesses of his, of his grace. 
So what we saw last time as we went through this section in verses 4 and 5 was that God intervenes to reverse the plans of fallen humanity. Man proposes, but God disposes. We looked at verse 4 last time, so tonight I want to look at verse 5 and begin there, and hopefully we'll get pretty far along. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Let's just catch this context. In verse 4, he says, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. What we're going to see in these examples is on one hand, we see the people who appear to be mighty according to human viewpoint, and God is going to take them down. And then the people who are lowly and are irrelevant according to human viewpoint are the ones God is going to elevate and God is going to bless. So it starts off, the bows of the mighty men are broken. God is going to break the power of those who are arrogant. Now, we may not see it in our lifetime. We may not see it in certain situations. But eventually, God is going to bring about that justice in a very real way in their lives. Then those who stumble, that is, those who are weak, those who can't walk, those who do not have power in themselves are girded with strength. God is going to strengthen the weak and the weary. So then we have the next set in verse 5. This verse is made up of two contrasting statements. The first set has to do with hunger and satisfaction, the first two lines, and then the, the second two lines focus on childbearing and uh, reversing barrenness. So in the first line, or in both of these, what we see is concrete examples of the principle from Matthew 19.30 that the first will be last and the last will be first. God is taking those who seem to be first. They are full. But now they're going to have to hire themselves out for bread. They will become the last. And in the second set, uh, we have the person who is last. She's barren. But the person who appears to be first because she's had children, she's going to find no pleasure from them. They will not provide for her. They will not take care of her. And she will find her children to be of no value. So as we look at the first two lines, we read, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Now, in this first line, it says, those who were full, this is the word uh, sabea, which means to be full or to be satisfied. So we're going to be those who are satiated, those who are satisfied, those who are full of themselves. They're satisfied with life. They have accomplished things. And now they have be, been rendered destitute. They have to hire themselves out. They have to beg for bread. Uh, they have now become the ones who are uh, who are starving. They had plenty of food to begin with, but God has taken them now, and now they have to look for work or beg for bread in order to be fed. In the um, the word have ceased in the second line, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. This is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's the word chadal. And there, there may be two different words that have the same spelling. We have homonyms, words that sound alike, like here and here, H-E-A-R and H-E-R-E. 
and they sound the same, but they have two different meanings. We also have some words that have, that are spelled the same, but they have different, uh, different meanings or different senses. And so we have to look at the word to see what it, what it actually means. So one meaning for chadal is to be fat or to be prosperous. And this would have the idea that the hungry have become prosperous. Or it has a second, there's a second root that is suggested, which has the idea of the hungry have ceased. Both of those words communicate basically the same thing, that the one who in the eyes of the world is worthless and has nothing is the one who needs to, who will be supplied and will be wealthy because of his, uh, the provision of God. In the second line, we read, even the barren has borne seven. Even the barren has born seven. And this is a, uh, really an allusion, a direct allusion to the victory that God has given to Hannah. She is the one who, like several others in Israel's history, was barren, was unable to conceive and unable to have, have a child. She's like the mother of Samson. We've seen that parallel between Samson and Samuel. And so here, uh, she is said to have had that reversed. Now, when we read even the barren has born seven, when we look at the number of children that Hannah had, it's five. She didn't have seven. But seven is a number of completion. So this was a, a Hebrew idiom that when somebody had done something sevenfold, it didn't necessarily mean that it was literally sevenfold as it was done to completion or done uh, done to fullness. And this word is used that way, this idea is used that way in two verses. In Jeremiah 15.9 says, She languishes who has borne seven. In other words, this is talking about a woman who has had uh, a number of children. She's uh, fulfilled her role as a mother, and but now she is languishing. A more precise example is in the second verse on the screen, Ruth 4.15 and may he, this is a blessing of Naomi to Ruth. May he be, that is, uh, her husband Boaz, be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. So the idea better to you than seven sons, than fullness, fullness or completion. So this is, this is the idea there. That, that the verse is saying that God is the one who can intervene even when life seems barren and empty. God is the one who can make it full and complete because he is the one who rules. In that last line, she who has many children has become feeble is a word that, as I've quoted here from the theological word book of the Old Testament, it is a word that has the idea of being childless, but it also implies or is used to refer to Israel as a nation that has become spiritually impotent. So she who should be blessed, which is an allusion to Israel, has become feeble. They've become childless. They've become uh, impotent spiritually because of their, their carnality. Now we come to verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, and in these verses, uh, uh, Hannah is going to express her confidence 
in God's ability to change things. And we see this in specifically in verse 6. In verse 6, we read the statement, the Lord kills and makes alive. Notice you have these two opposites. That, that's a figure of speech called a merism. I've talked about these before. When you want to include everything uh, from A to Z, see, I just used an English merism. You talk about the beginning, the first letter, and the last letter. That means everything in between, alpha and omega, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, last letter in the Greek alphabet. That means everything in between. God's cre- God created the heavens and the earth. Is there anything left out? No. It is a way of talking about uh, everything in between two opposites. So the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive tells us that God's in control of everything. If he can control life and death, God controls everything. He is omnipotent. The, The Lord kills and he makes alive. Again, a clear statement of God's sovereignty in history. Now, uh, there's uh, and then the second line he brings down to the grave and he brings up now this is an interesting statement i think it has uh, another uh, uh, implication here but it does imply possibly a a statement of resurrection now some scholars will say well resurrection's a much later doctrine they didn't really understand it then and I would say that this is, that's completely fraudulent because you have this in passages like Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. This is talking about Abraham. See, one of the things that happens with scholars is they get too scholarly. One of the things that, that you have in a lot of Old Testament departments in seminaries today is the idea that if we're not told that God told them something in the Old Testament, then they didn't know it. But nothing in the Old Testament says that God, that it records everything that God told them. We don't know everything that God told Adam, but Adam certainly knew a lot and learned a lot from God. He learned about sacrifice, and he learned about what were clean animals and what were unclean animals. There were a lot of things that were taught uh, by God uh, during that period, about roughly 1,800 years from Adam to Noah. And when God told Noah to put seven of every clean animal and a pair of every unclean animal onto the ark, he didn't have to. The text doesn't tell us what were clean animals and what were unclean animals, or how Noah knew which were clean and which were unclean. But obviously he already knew, but we never learned that. There are a lot of things that they understood, and we only have 11 chapters in the Bible and from um, creation to Babylon. And that covers a period of about 2,000 years. But there's a lot that went on in those 2,000 years that we aren't told about. Look how many, the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 until uh, Malachi covers about 1,600 years. And look how much that is in your Old Testament. So there's a lot that went on in those first 11 chapters uh, about which we're pretty ignorant. But in Hebrews 11:17, we're told that Abraham was tested. And this is in Genesis 22 when God told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, to the mountains of Moriah, and to sacrifice him. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. God told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up there and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. And you're going to sacrifice him. And Abraham said, no. I I mean, excuse me, Abraham said, yes. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's wrong. And, And people have said, see, Abraham was going to commit murder. No, Abraham understood finally that God's plan was that through his son, the promised son, the seed, Isaac, that God's plan was going to go forward and that nothing could stop that. And so it was an ultimate test to see if God, if he was willing to completely give up his hope and his dream through Isaac, knowing that God would fulfill his promise. And so we read in verse 18, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding, that is, Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up. See, Abraham had a clear understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. So he knew that that God could raise him up from the dead, and so he was willing to go along and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So uh, Abraham had this clear understanding. So I think that if that was uh, approximately uh, six or probably about 500 years before Hannah, four or 500 years before Hannah, Hannah clearly had an understanding of of um, resurrection. Now, another thing that we see in this verse, let me back it up, the Lord kills and makes alive. There are examples of this same kind of language in other verses related to God. And we can see that in verses such as Deuteronomy 32:39, where God is speaking. He says, now see that I, even I am he, there is no God beside me. See, that's that same idea that God is exclusive. He's unique. There's no God beside him. It says, I kill and I make alive. It's the same language that we have in uh, in Hannah's Psalm in verse 6. I kill and I make alive. Uh, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. I'm God. Nobody can mess with me. Second Kings 5.7, it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? See, he understood that God is the one who's the author of life and the author of death. Now, I want to go back a couple of verses to here we go to this word mavet or mot uh, depending on how it's uh, you, you do the vowels there this is the word that relates to killing it comes from the word mot which is the name of the Canaanite god for death and so again we see this in this this understated polemic against Baal. In the Baal uh, story, Baal has to succumb to death, to Mot, the god of death, and he goes into the underworld for a period of time before he's released and he comes back to life. But in the Bible, Yahweh is completely in control. He holds the power of life and death in his hands. He cannot die. He does not die. And he determines when death and life come to each one of us. God determines the time, the manner, and the place of our death. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. 
Now, you may change the quality of your death by not taking care of yourself, and you may go through a period of time before you die that's not as comfortable as it would have been if you had made some other good decisions. Uh, that may be true. That may, may be you may go through negative situations or circumstances related to your death. They may have nothing to do with your volition. Uh, that's just the way God is working in, in your particular life. But God is the one who is in control. And now when we look at this, this language that we find in Hannah's uh, psalm, it's similar to the kind of language that we have in the story of Baal and Mot. Uh, she talks uh, in, in that story, the verb uh, that is used to describe uh, Baal's descent into the underworld is the same word that Hannah uses here to describe how Yahweh brings down, brings down to the grave, brings down to Sheol, and then he brings up. So again, there's just this allusion by vocabulary which is she's sort of twisting the knife a little bit into the into the Canaanites and the pagans to show that the God of the Bible uh, is the God who rules over death. Now this line that we have here at the uh, at the end of verse six, he brings down to the grave and brings up. I don't believe by comparing with other scripture that that's talking about uh, it's parallel but it's not ide- identically or are perfectly synonymous to the first line bringing down to the grave and bringing up are used in another sense in Psalm 30 verse 2 and 3 and there David says O Lord my God I cried out to you and you healed me so he's not talking about uh, being brought back from the dead he says, O oh Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. He's using hyperbole here. Life had become so miserable that he wished he were dead. He thought he were dead. He just couldn't imagine anything being any worse. He was depressed. He was discouraged. People had deserted him. His enemies were winning the victory. He, he felt like he was one step from death. And so he says, I was at the verge of, of death, but you restored me. You brought me back to life. You changed the circumstances of my life. You kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit, that I should not uh, should not die. And so this is uh, one way in which that, uh, that was used. It's also an, uh, a theme that is picked up uh, later on, by Mary, when she is praising God after Gabriel has announced that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. She says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away uh, empty. And that is what we see in verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. God is the one who changes the circumstances and gives us victory. Now, the word that is used there for lifting up is a word we've seen already. It's the word uh, ravam or room, and it means to be high or exalted. It's used in verse 7, it's used in verse 8, and it uses in verse 10. That tells us that a major theme here is that God in his sovereignty is the one who can lift us up from whatever circumstances we're in. When things are overwhelming, when things look like we're on the edge of defeat, when things look like 
where everything is going to be lost. God is the only one who can lift us up. That doesn't mean God always will, but he will, but he can, and we need to turn to him to seek his strength and his, 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 uh, guidance to be, uh, recovered from those situations. In verse 8, we read, He raises the poor from the dust, which reflects on Psalm 113, verse 7. And he says, He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes. That's indicated also and picked up in Psalm 113, verse 8, and makes them inherit the throne of glory. So again, we see the another example. It's God who takes the one who is uh, poor, and he raises them up. He takes the one that is rich by uh, human viewpoint standards, and uh, he's, he uh, destroys them. But here in verse 8a in the first part, it's focusing on two examples or several ex- two examples of those who are elevated to, to wealth and to power. The poor is raised from the death, from the dust, which is parallel to the beggar being lifted up from the dung heap, the manure pile. Uh, so he's taken out of the manure pile, given a bath and elevated to be set among the princes, someone who would be overlooked and would have no value is now going to be cleaned up by God and set among the princes, and he will make them inherit the throne of glory. So these are all of these examples that you read through here that God is the one who has the ability and the power to transform our circumstances, and he is going to bring judgment to the arrogant, and he's going to lift up and strengthen the humble. Why can he do this? This is what we see in verse 8, the last part of verse 8, because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And I put a little picture there of Ken Follett's book, The Pillars of the Earth, because this is the verse from which he get, got that title. That's a great book if you like reading about things in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, it's great, and you learn a lot about the architecture of, of cathedrals. If you uh, read that book, it's a great novel. I read it, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. The pillars of the earth, I think, is an allusion to the foundation of the earth, that God laid the foundation of the earth. I think this took place on the first day of creation, the first verse, rather, not the first day of creation, the first verse, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's when he laid the foundation of the earth. That's when he laid the pillars of the earth. Job uh, 38, 4 through 7 tells us that when God laid the foundation of the earth, the sons of God, all of them united before Satan's rebellion, sang with joy. But the foundations and the pillars are the first thing you set up as you're constructing something. So this is established at the very beginning. And it's the emphasis here is God is the one who created out of nothing. Before God created the heavens and the earth, there was nothing but God. For eons and eons, nothing but God. And out of nothing, he created the heavens and the earth. And if he can do that, then he certainly has the power to handle whatever our meagerly little problems are, because he's the one who created everything and oversees things. We learn also that he continues to sustain things, 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. If he can do that in his omnipotence, he can handle our circumstances and our problems. Psalm 113:7 through 9 uh, uses the same language as Hannah uh, uses in First uh, uh, Samuel 2. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. So the psalmist borrows from her language, which shows the influence of Hannah's psalm down through the centuries, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. And uh, and this should should also be read along with what Mary says, because she borrows a lot of that language in Luke chapter 1 as she praises God. Then we come to verse 9, which says, He will guard the feet of His saints. He will watch over us, not, uh, not, ju- in, not just some general way, but specifically. But the wicked, in contrast, that's the unbeliever, shall be silent in darkness. And then there's a statement, For by strength... No man shall prevail. It doesn't matter what power the wicked have. It doesn't matter how much money the wicked have. What matters is to have God on your side. Now, the interesting thing is the word for saints is the uh, Hebrew word chassid. Have you heard that word before? Chassid, the Hasidic Jews. Okay, that's the word that uh, where, where this comes from. And it's built off of another word. It's built off of the, a verb you've heard before, or excuse me, a noun you've heard before, chesed. Chesed is the word that it refers to God's, uh, God's covenant love. And a lot of people didn't understand this word until we get into modern times and the help and aid of archaeology. But this idea of chesed indicates the free acts of grace or deliverance of God for his people. And so the ones for whom God acts are the saints, the holy ones, the chassid or the chassidim. So then we get to verse 10, and this is the messianic uh, conclusion of this psalm. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And so from this we see that Hannah is looking not only at her own circumstances, but it's the circumstances of Israel, and she's got the long view on history, that the adversaries of the Lord are ultimately going to be destroyed. They will be broken in pieces. And as Israel at this time is under the thumb of the Philistines and under their control, she is saying that that power will be broken through the one who comes... um, because of my son. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. From heaven he will thunder against them. Again, this is contra contra, um, Baal. Baal was the god of thunder, but it is Yahweh who thunders from heaven, and Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, 
and exalt the horn of his anointed. So there we have the word Mashiach, his anointed, tied to king. So she recognizes that the Messiah who comes is going to be a king. He's going to be a ruler. And that Messiah is going to defeat the enemies of God. Now, this is written about 1100, about 1100 B.C., David probably hasn't been born yet. David will probably be born in another generation or two, 50 or 60 years. And David is going to write this psalm, Psalm 2-1, a psalm we've gone to many times that's a great messianic psalm. And it starts off with this look at a future battle where the kings of the earth are in rebellion against God. And we read, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, his anointed. So Hannah understands this because she's going to say the same thing. This sets up the conflict in the future. And what the kings of the earth are saying is, let us break their bonds. That is the bonds that God has put on us and cast away their cords from us. But what's the Messiah going to do? Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. What what does Hannah say? Hannah says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. She's saying the same thing. uh, 1 Samuel 2.10 needs to be connected to Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who trust in him. This is what Hannah sees. She understands this. David puts these words down, writes, pins these words some hundred years later, but he is saying the same thing that Hannah says in this last, last verse. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us or in our personal details. God is the one who can give us victory even when it looks like we're on the verge of defeat. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, and we pray that you'd help us to understand them and put them into practice and that we might learn to relax and trust in you because we know that uh, you care about us that uh, you oversee the details of our life and that we are to relax and rest in you knowing that you are the unique God, creator God of the universe and all of these details are in your control. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.